0: So we see here, Resting in Providence, Part 9, and I laid out the rest of the verses for you, and I said that we would on this Sunday uh, make a connection between the providence of God and this season. Uh, Prophetically, God has spoken about Jesus Christ's coming and the idea of the incarnation. So how did the providential hand of God uh, move to this point where in history uh, there is God incarnate? And we recognize that during this time of year. Uh, Christmas is a wonderful time of the year, and I think we all agree with that as people come together in ways that they normally would not. Uh, it's a great time to visit with friends and family, and you enjoy fellowship um, that is sort of unique during this time. and you enjoy that fellowship with believers and also unbelieving family and friends as well. But of course, even as was stated in some of our praise time, There can be distractions, and those distractions battle uh, for our attention every year. And there are expectations that people have this year. I mean, expectations to decorate, expectations to purchase, to prepare, to visit, to spend. And sometimes all of these things can absorb your time and energy and your focus that should be more committed to focusing on Jesus Christ, the reason for the season. Jesus Christ coming to give his life as a ransom for many. And even in our neighborhood, as we, every year, the HOA has, um, they give an award, a gift certificate, I forget, it's a pretty significant amount of the top three homes that are decorated the most during this year. And uh, recently, um, our neighbor who was in the original house that's there when the track was first built, he moved to be with his daughter, I think in, in Idaho, and uh, a younger couple moved in, and he is an electrician. So, yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. So he's an electrician, and we are just there. (laughs) So it's his house and our house, right? So we're like kind of Scrooge, and he's like, Merry Christmas, (laughs) as far as lights go. Uh, The only lights we have are our our garage lights and (laughs) and our door lights. That's about it. Uh, yeah, and a flashlight when we we're outside. That's about it. And his house is, you should just, you you have my address if you've been there before. Just drive by and see it. You can probably, if you just wait till night and get on a hill over here somewhere, you could probably see his house. I mean, really, it is like that. And you drive by, and you see he's an electrician, obviously. And he just enjoyed it. when he started telling me what he's going to do and what he's done before, his face just started to light up. It's sort of like one of us that teach the Word of God. And and you started to talk to us, and I get to teach, and and I'm going to share about God's providence, and we're going to tie together the incarnation, and people will be encouraged by it. He was like, I'm going to get 15,000 volts of electricity going, you know, with that sort of thing. But wow, we didn't do anything. We have our gr- two garage lights and, and the lights that go in, and that's about it in our home. Um, and those that do it, that's fine. But we, I think we all know that certain things can distract us, right? And it pulls away our affections and our energies, and we make commitments that perhaps we shouldn't make. And lo and behold, the season has gone by, and we ask ourselves, there is Christmas. It's not just another day. I mean, think about it. It's, it's a profound demonstration of God's providential hand as he is moving with the general parts of history and particularly events in history to bring about his prophetic word that he would send a son that would be the ransom for many. It's not just another day. It's not just another season. And we, when we say Christmas Day the 25th, we all know that um, we are not saying emphatically or even um, closely that this is the day in which the Incarnation took place. It's just a date that we've chosen to celebrate. But if it had been, it could be July 15th, and it really wouldn't matter. It could be September the 1st, and it wouldn't matter. It's the reality that it did occur, right? <laughs> it in fact occurred. There was an, in fact, Emmanuel, and that call, "Oh come, oh come, Emmanuel, was heard, and Jesus Christ was delivered, and he walked amongst men, and he healed, and he taught, and he was crucified, and he was buried, and he was raised again from the dead. So during this season, I want you, and I know you want that as well, and I pray that you want that as well, to focus your attention on this great truth. And what is this great truth? That God's word, God's word is voracious. And what he has planned will come about. The timing of those events that we see throughout history have been moved by the sovereign providential hand of God. And so now we can say, amen, the Lord's word has been fulfilled. So in this ninth lesson, ninth lesson on the providence of God, I want us to focus on the Incarnation in Providence, or we could even say prophecy to a certain degree in Providence, and how God has moved to bring about the Incarnation. So what I'm going to do is give you, um, I pray, some historical points and also several passages that will present to you. There are going to be eight truths, eight truths concerning... Providential, we'll call it providential incarnation. That I hope, this is my hope, and it should be any preacher's hope when he preaches that somehow God is going to be lifted up in their minds, that you can appreciate this time of the year more than ever before and give you another reason to rest in God's providential care. So, there are going to be eight truths that we're going to consider about. The Incarnation and god 's Word unfolding and history unfolding, and I pray that you will be encouraged by it, and you have another reason walk away from here i 'm hoping that when you go out of those doors, you can say, "I have another reason to trust my God. I have, a, I have another reason to rest in god 's providential care and all these weeks that we 've been going over it and defining it and seeing it in scripture. Um, I just want to continue to build the blocks in your mind and in your heart where you can say, I trust the Lord. And like I've asked you throughout these messages, I want to ask you again these questions. I mean, have you found time since our last lesson to rest in the reality that God controls all things in life? Do you find rest in that, that the particular events of life that God is in special control. In the general areas of life, God is in special control. Nothing escapes his sovereign hand. It is a a hand that is all-powerful and all-reaching and all-seeing. Nothing is beyond him. So I hope that you can appreciate this time even more as you rest in him. And the heading, the main heading is this. Rests as you consider the providential hand of God in the incarnation. Jesus Christ has come to give his life a ransom, which he did, and he is at the right hand of God even now. So number one, as we work our way through this, number one, providential incarnation has its origin in the eternal plan of God. So we start in eternity. So we think about an event that took place, and that was in fact Jesus Christ's coming, the Emmanuel, but its origin is in the eternal plan of God. We see that in Romans 11. It's it's evident, as we'll notice in a moment, in John 1, Ephesians 1. So first we think there is a theological necessity to this reality, and that is the immutability of God, which we've discussed before. God is unchanging. He is not evolving. He is not becoming better. He is not shifting in his decisions. God is an immutable God. Nothing changes in his person. So since God is never developing in his thoughts and his intentions or his wisdom, and which is the basis of what Paul said in Romans chapter 11, 33 to 36, where Paul said there, he talks about the depths and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He said that his judgments are unsearchable and his ways are inscrutable. Who has been his counselor? Who would counsel the Lord? No one will because our God is an immutable God. He doesn't change. And this is why no one can fully understand the depth of his wisdom and of his knowledge. We think about that. This is also consistent with James' declaration. James tells us, of course, in James 1.17, he makes a declaration that in God, the Father of lights, there is no variation or shifting shadow. And some of you that may have the ESV, um, it will say something like shifting shadow due to change. So it, it fills out the thought for you. And it's obvious when we think about a shifting shadow, the implication is obvious there, right? A shadow changes because what? Time is moving. We, at our home, when we had everyone over for Sundays at the Hargroves, it was a shifting shadow. And literally at one point in time, we got the uh, the pull-up and we moved it after about two hours somewhere else because now all the sun was beaming on their faces. Time was moving ahead, but with God he is outside of time. He is this eternal being that is immutable, and we should rest in that reality. Rest in the reality that he is so unlike us. Aren't you glad for that today, that he is so unlike? I'll just say he's unlike me. Praise the Lord for that. That he is not like me. That he is not like me, inconsistent. That he is not like me, not always loving. That he's not like me, changing opinion. Now I may be a man that has convictions, and there's certain things that I would die on uh, unequivocally. I would say no, I will never give that up. But still, the other areas of my life that's changed and shifted, and thoughts, opinions changed. Even this trip, the reason we're sort of um, doing what we're doing now, we thought, okay, let's let's uh, let's just take the red eye, and we'll get in at six in the morning. That's okay. And we thought maybe not. Let's not do that. So we decided now let's make a a change in our flight, and let's get out a little bit earlier. Changes and plans. God has no change in a plan because that plan is established in his mind. that is set in eternity, and you can rest in that comfort in that reality. And of course there's no change with God because um, perfection has no need to change. I mean, if it did, then it's no longer perfection. There is no development with God. And if God did change, then he has gone from perfection to imperfection. And when that occurs, he is no longer the God of the Bible. And we should rest in that reality that he does not change. See, this eternal plan is evidenced even in the words of the Baptist. And what does the Baptist say when he saw Jesus Christ? And you finish the thought, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? (laughs) Takes away the sins of the world. He saw him. And that was a declaration of an eternal plan set in the mind of God. Now it's unfolding in time. And now the Baptist, who was to be that forerunner for this one who would come, sees him and he makes a declaration that's consistent with what God has known since he has been God. And even I always, language just doesn't allow us to express it. Because every time I say since he's been God, I almost want to come back and say again, which I've said before. Um, even in that, we have to think I am that I am. Even when someone says the fact that, well, when God decided that there would be redemption. No, I know we're limited in our human expressions when we try to use words to express God and who he is and how he acts. But there is no Time that God, let's say, for instance, if we can now place God in time, if you will, there was no time when God is here for a trillion years. And he says, let's redeem. That's a good idea. No, there is. It's always been because there's no development with God. And his thoughts like that, at least for me, they give me this great sense of comfort. That I'm so glad God is this way. So John the Baptist sees what was already true in eternity, and he makes a declaration. And these words are just stated differently, but they are bound to what John said in 129, when Paul said that you are chosen before what? The foundation of the world. And when it says the foundation of the world, obviously Paul is not saying, well, uh, let's take a creationist view, and we would say that God established the universe, or at least when we think about our solar system, at this date in time. No, it is not that. It is saying before there was time. So Paul's language is not trying to date creation. He is simply saying in eternity. And this is a similar thought of when Paul in Thessalonians as well says that we were chosen from the beginning. And of course, John 1 tells us what, in the what, beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when he says their beginning, he's not trying to establish a time, he's just saying eternity. This is an eternal plan, so the providential hand of God is established in eternity, and now he's going to begin, as he interacts in time, it will unfold. So number two, it's this. Providential incarnation has its origin in the garden episode. It has its origin in the garden episode. And what do I mean by that? When we think about first uh, the decree of the fall, the decree of the fall, God has decided, had decided that there would be a fall. He would allow man to sin. Adam and Eve would make a decision. They would choose In the midst of paradise, in this perfection, they would choose more than what God would allow. And then in that episode, because now man is cast into sin, there is something that was stated prophetically. Genesis 3.15, right? And what does it say? You can turn there, or just listen as I read it. And it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. And he, being Jesus Christ, would come, and he would ultimately defeat death, and he would defeat the enemy. Now, right now, he is still the God of this world, and as time is unfolding, we get closer and closer to that second return. And after that second return, setting all things right, at least on this earth, and even at the end of a thousand years, then ultimately, his enemy is being cast into a lake of fire When is he going to come? How will he bruise him? And how will he bruise him? Well, of course, the incarnation takes place. It's it's Isaiah 9, 6. There is one who is going to be born, uh, speaking to the humanity of Jesus Christ. And there's one who is going to be given. A son is going to be given. The child is born and a son is given. So he is going to be given, speaks of his divinity. Now, Genesis 3.15, as well as other scriptures, is now unfolding in time. God's prophetic word is coming true, but yet his providential hand is guiding it. Here's a third truth for us to consider. Number three, providential incarnation has its origin in the humiliation of a nation. The humiliation of a nation. A number of scriptures for us to think about. What I want to focus Here on Egypt, what does Egypt have to do with the incarnation and prophecy? Remember, there's going to be millenniums of this unfolding in time. So we go from God creating, uh, there is a fall, and now we're waiting for him to come to bruise and to be bruised. There's a rise of the Egyptians, and we think about just them as a, as a mighty nation, the rise of the Egyptians, and it's in part because they would settle and take full advantage of the great Nile River, the life-giving Nile. And they would develop as a society, even today, we think about what they've accomplished is still mind-boggling to those that would study archaeology and even science. When you think about just the pyramids themselves, it's fascinating. And their medical advances that they had at that time, it's fascinating to consider. Who allowed that? Who gives man breath? Someone tell me. Who gives man sight? Who gives, them in th- who gives them thoughts? Who gives them intelligence? God does. He is orchestrating all of this. He allows them to develop as a civilization. They would show great prowess in all areas of culture. Who allowed that? God did. But yet, he would humiliate them, because this would be a part of God's sovereign plan as well. Some texts that tell us how God is ordering the nations, right? Um, Isaiah 40 and 15, the nations are a drop in the, in the bucket. Psalm 2, the psalmist communicates there, why are the nations in an uproar? Why are they a vetting against the Lord? ultimately there is going to be no outcome that they would want because lest the son be angry against him and he will show his anger at his second coming and he will fight against him and there will be a battle and there will be a slaughter. It's fascinating to me being at the place that we would consider Armageddon and being there and looking at it and this great battle that is going to take place is and I'm just trying to picture in my mind what this is going to look like as these forces of the world come against the people of God. But yet, in a moment, they're gone. It's again, it's it's Proverbs 21, that God has the king's heart in his hand. It's, it's Acts 17, I believe it's in Acts 26. Acts 17, 26, the nations and all the people, it says... Uh, their destinies, it's determined by the providential plan of God. It is set. Just like all of us here, and I've mentioned this before, uh, it's a joy when I come and see your faces and see different faces and backgrounds and ages. And um, how many of you, your people go to, are would find an origin in Asia? How many? You can raise your hand. Be proud. All right. All right. How about Europe? Where are European? All right, Europe here. All right, Um, how about like um, your, where else do I need to go? South America, South America, South America going once. All right, over here. Amen. How about Central America? Central America anywhere. Oh, we have Central America taken right there. Excellent. Uh, Any Antarctica here? Okay, not this time. They're first time visitors. It it was a little too warm in here for them. Uh, All over the place. Some folks, that urge and goes back to Africa. All right. Um, Native America. My, on my dad's side are people from right here. Wow. God knew that. Your parents, he knew that. Where you'd be born, he knew that. That was determined in an eternal plan. God is saving people from the nations, but he also brings up nations to lower nations. And that's the exodus, I said, in the humiliation of a nation. Because God would do what? He would orchestrate the rise and fall of Pharaoh for his glory. Because God would do what? He would set aside a people. They would grow up in Goshen, and they would become intimidating to the Egyptians, and they would, of course, with their unjust labor that was upon them, but somehow it caused them to grow stronger with each other. And until one day, God would send a deliverer. And that deliverer would be a precursor to whom? To Jesus Christ. He would be a prophet, but not the greatest prophet. He would be a deliverer, but not the greatest deliverer. And he would take them out of a land to a new land, a promised land, but there would be one, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin who would come and he would transfer us out of a kingdom, not Egypt, but Egypt is often referred to as the kingdom that we were in because it was a place of darkness, it was a place of slavery, and he would deliver us from that and place us in a new kingdom and give us a new home. So God is moving history. Number four is this, providential incarnation has its origin in the establishment of a nation though and the establishment of a nation, because God would bring them out of Egypt, and he would establish Israel as a nation. He would do it formally. There was the giving of the law. We see throughout Deuteronomy, there's the giving of the law and a covenant. Now, they are a formal nation, and there is a covenant between God and Israel, and God in that law said that there are blessings and cursings and if you would follow me then you would have the fruit of the land if you would follow me and teach your children that you would be blessed however if you do not and if you go after the gods of the nations there would be many cursings upon you so God now God has established a nation he has caused one to rise by his providential hand and then now he has lowered it before all the other nations around it and he has established this nation From a slave nation. Isn't that curious? And that's simply a a look to us, is it not? Because we were people who were formerly, according to Romans 6, we were all enslaved to what? Sin, the devil. But now it's what? We have a new father. And we have freedom in Christ. Number five is this. Providential incarnation has its origin in the establishment of the law. Jesus Christ would come, and it says in Galatians 4, in the perfect time. Just notice that thought, the perfect time. So why didn't Jesus Christ come during the Babylonian time or the Roman time? Oh, I'm sorry, he did, but um, during the Assyrian time or the Persian time. Or why didn't he come after that? Because God had already spoken prophetically that there would be a rising of nations, and at a certain time, Emmanuel would come and under this law there would be laws for marriage and there would be laws even eventually developed for Nazarene laws that would be taken and there would be understanding amongst the people when it came to betrothal and that's significant because think about what happened when Joseph believed that Mary was pregnant through fornication he sought to do what put her away divorce her because we need to understand though is um, not as we would think about um, engagement. It is, I'm simply waiting for our final moment. You are committed. We are committed in this. And this is why he would have to divorce her and put her away. But it wasn't that. There are many laws that were given where men would violate God's moral law. And they would violate that time after time after time again. There were laws that talked about sacrifice and there's one that we should focus on this sacrificial system can be distilled really to these truths and it is this that there was a sacrifice that had to be given and that sacrifice had to be without spot and without what blemish. without blemish so now if there is going to be a visitation by God it couldn't simply be an angel It couldn't be the prophets who had spoken time after time after time after time again. It had to be God himself because it has to be without spot and without blemish. It requires perfection. It had to be Jesus Christ. It had to be God in the human flesh. And even the Word of God tells us that every sacrifice prior to Jesus Christ, according to the book of Hebrews, is insufficient. It was only Christ. Then there's this sense of satisfaction in the law. Israel violated time and time and time again. They could not satisfy, they could not be that people. So how can all things be made right? How can I be forgiven? It required Jesus Christ being, as John would say, the propitiation for our sins he would make that ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate atonement for us. Because we have, apart from Jesus Christ, you have, apart from Jesus Christ, an utter inability to satisfy the demands of the law. Do we agree with that? You cannot satisfy. So the incarnation is necessary. So in God's sovereign, providential hand, he's established a system of law that acts as a moral compass, but in that moral compass, man violates it all the time. It's as if God is telling us, and sometimes we use, whether it be Google Maps or iMaps or Waze, and it's telling you left and 500 feet right and a quarter of a mile, do this. It's as if God is telling man constantly through his law, here is the direction, here is truth. Find me, and man is constantly saying, no, I'm ignoring it, I'm ignoring it. But unlike simply not following a a GPS signal, you you may eventually get there and you take another route. Perhaps you get there and you're delayed. Uh, When men reject this spiritual compass that God has given them, the consequences are eternal. I mean, it it means eternal separation from God. And that's why we should think, if we're really thinking about Christmas properly during this time of the year, people that we should witness to. Because, friends, what, what's the point of having? And you can still come together with friends um, and family that don't know the Lord. And their are family that I know right now. And I enjoy their company. And we'll have fun. And especially when they can fix a lot of southern food for me, it's just a great <laughs> occasion, right? It really is. But then you can walk away knowing that if I get a phone call about one of them, they're going to spend an eternity separated from God because they've ignored the compass. And when people ignore God's spiritual compass, which is his law, which is a reflection of his holiness, which is also a reflection of man's inability and his sinfulness, when they ignore that, it's not simply that you show up late. You don't show up at all. So if we're going to think properly about this time, we should have a heart that represents the incarnation, which was God-giving that man might have. So I want to encourage you in that way. Number six is this. Providential incarnation has its origin in the protection of a nation. The book of Esther, as we looked at even just briefly some weeks ago, that God is protecting a nation because we know what has happened there. Um, Haman wants to exact his revenge on Mordecai because he is jealous of him. And what happens? This edict goes out and all the people of God would be destroyed, not just the Jews that are in in Persia proper, but throughout the entire empire which obviously meant the Jews that are now in Israel. So God, God's hand moves providentially to protect those people. But the question is, why are they even there? Why, is, why are people even in Persia at this time? Well, because of what? In exile. Why? Because of what? They have defied the law. They have broken the covenant time and time again. They are there because now it's the fulfillment of God's prophetic word, which said, if you deny these things, then there will be curses. And now here is one of the curses. You are exiled in a foreign land. But God in his providential hand, of course, move on the hearts of even the leaders there and allow the people to return to rebuild the temple. You can see the idea of generational sin. We won't go there now. We don't have time to go through it all. But 2 Kings 14 to 18, and the cross-reference being Second Chronicles 25 to 27. And you see time and time again this violation in the history of the kings and how they're violating God's law, and He is allowing it. And God is eventually says, enough is enough. And when God says enough is enough, a long time has taken place, amen? <laughs> because there's no one patient like the Lord. I mean, when we think about that full moment, God says, enough. I mean, this is generation after generation after generation, and now he finally says, you will go away into exile. So what happens? Well, 722 BC, they're taken away for their sin. Number seven is this. Providential incarnation has its origin and the rise of a nation, and the rise of a nation. So nations come and go. The Assyrians came, and they rose, and um, conquered by the Babylonians. And then the Persians rise, and then they're conquered by the Greeks. And the Greeks rise, and they're conquered by the Romans. And then God is saying, now is that time for the incarnation. He would be born under the law and he would be born in this Roman Empire. God is moving the nations, and he's bringing up a nation for his prophetic word to be fulfilled. And it's interesting, because even if we consider Luke chapter 2, excuse me, look with me at Luke chapter 2. just this simple demonstration of God's plan unfolding here. So the rising of the Roman Empire through God's sovereign providential hand, and it says, now in those days, Luke 2.1, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, and a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone who was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph, who also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And what happens and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Why is that happening? I mean, these, we are familiar with that story, but when you think about it from a larger standpoint, God is raising up a nation, and there would be a Caesar, Caesar Augustus who would say, there must be a census, and because there's a census, they return to fulfill Micah 5 and 2. It's connected. History and providence and prophecy all unfolding at the same time to bring about this result. And what would be seen? Go with me to to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, skip by it there. Verse 13, and excuse me. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a what? Great light. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Jesus Christ But you say, of course, well, it was prophetically spoken, but we have to understand how God's hand throughout history is ordering all these events and the rising and the falling of nations to bring this about. And what's interesting as well, during the time which the people were in exile, they were in a darkness, if you will, but it had been prophetically spoken through Isaiah, and that light, they would wait on it, and they would not see it fulfilled. It would be fulfilled hundreds and hundreds of years later. So here they are, devastated by the Assyrians. A prophetic word is given, and they wouldn't see that light, but that ultimate light would come. Number eight is our eighth truth about this time. Providential incarnation has its origin in the line of a king. In the line of a king. Let me start by... making this statement. I came across a very interesting article by Henry Morris, and it talked about the improbability of the incarnation. And some interesting facts when it comes to the choosing of sons. And think about it. um, Noah makes a blessing on Shem above his other sons. That's um, Genesis 9 and 26. So he chooses Shem. Why does he choose Shem? Because God is Ordering providence. He will be called a Shemite. Abraham is chosen. Genesis 12 and 3. Abraham is chosen by God. And it's maybe estimated at this time that perhaps there are 60,000 perhaps men on the planet at this time. And 60,000 are going to be chosen. And (laughs) why? Think about it. 60,000. And from the sons of eventually of Shem, Abraham. Now, this is 10 generations later, 10 generations after Shem. God says, Abraham, I choose you. And then remember Isaac, the choosing of Isaac. He's chosen from the 12, the, I'm sorry, the eight sons of Abraham. Then Jacob. Well, it's a little easier. Jacob is just chosen from the two sons of Isaac and, and Judah, is chosen from the 12 sons of, of Jacob. Then, hundreds of years later, God chooses David. And at this time in the nation, perhaps there are about 200,000 men, and God says, I choose you, David. And then Solomon, to keep this line going, Solomon is chosen from the 19 sons of, of David. Then, when you calculate this out, they say, What's the probability then? That this line continue, and that Jesus Christ would be of this line, and three times sixty thousand times eight times two times twelve times two hundred thousand times nineteen equals thirteen trillion. Thirteen. I just did that. No. (laughs) Don't believe that. That is not prophetic. (laughs) Yeah, it was thirteen trillion. The probability that there is going to be this one that comes from this line of these people, 13 trillion. And then, wait a minute, we have to factor in some other, uh, don't we? What about Mary? And they're both from Judah. And let's factor in the reality that it's also from Bethlehem. And at this time, there may be a hundred cities and it would be actually Bethlehem. And we start to factor in these things and we say it's nothing but the hand of God, Amen. And we, we start all the way in the garden that says he will bruise you, you will bruise him. And now we find ourselves at a stable. It's only God that can do that. And when we look at the line of, from Luke 3 and, and then Matthew 2 and see these lines of their lineage coming together, that's a providential hand of God. So throughout we see this sense of choice, a choice that began. Let's try the fruit. A choice that the people had. Let's go back to Egypt. A choice that the people have. Let's serve the gods of the Philistines. A choice that the people had. And but then there'll be punishment. And then there would be protection, it would be choice and punishment and protection, and it would be God's hand constantly moving along history to this end. And think about it for a moment, even um, when the people were stubborn in the Exodus episode, God himself, and it's interesting theologically, we don't have time to unfold it now, when he said, these people are stiff-necked people. Let me destroy them, and Moses, I'll make a people from your seed. Then Moses does what? Intercedes. You look at all these details unfolding to this event, and there's more. that obviously be said, and you say to yourself, why don't I trust the Lord? And if God is moving the very nations, hearts of men that that are seemingly all powerful, at least as far as human um, prowess is concerned, but yet when I'm faced with the issues in life I wonder. And this is a part of the problem that we all have and I do say we all have it's this. Um distinguishing between wonder and wonder. Okay? Hmm. Wonder and wonder. What is Hargrove talking about? What is he talking about? Wonder and wonder. I'll pace a little bit. Someone earlier said I was pacing in the back, which I was. It wasn't a nervous pace. I just was anticipating. It's sort of like a before-the-game pace, you know, before-the-game pace. Wonder and wonder. This is what I'm proposing. The Scripture tells us that we were fearfully and how wonderfully made. Wonderfully made. I'm proposing that if we would wonder, have a sense of wonder in God, the greatness of God and who he is, that this God controls all things, that he is supreme in everything. If I would have a sense of wonder that he loves me enough that he would give his son, that when I think about in Isaiah 6, Isaiah 9 and 6, that this child is born and the son is given. That if I would have a sense of wonder, that he would be given for me as a sinner. And this child that is born innocent, and he must be innocent because the law requires it. He must be blameless because the law requires it. And we know what the law would even say with the sacrifices that preceded him. If there was a blemish sacrifice, was it acceptable? No, it was discarded. And this is why John, when he saw him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is why we see a Revelation 4 and a Revelation 5. Worthy is he who was slain. So if we would have a sense of wonder of God, maybe we wouldn't wonder if he cares. Maybe we wouldn't wonder if he's going to provide maybe we wouldn't wonder if that's the best choice or not to make when you know that choice is going to be an offense to God. See, wonder will keep us from wondering. Father, thank you for your word that you give us and how you have orchestrated all these events of life, and there's so many more. Uh, Forgive me for any shortcomings. I pray that you make up the difference. In the minds of these people that are here, I pray that they would wonder, have wonder in you, see your greatness. From the garden all the way to Bethlehem, you are guiding. And if you can guide that much, surely you will not forsake us. And you will continue to guide. Thank you for Jesus Christ. I think we uh, just gonna pray for all of you here you take a moment and speak to the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ, as Savior, that is, you come to grips with your sin. You see him as the only way to be saved, that you would repent today. For those of you that know the Lord, I pray that if there's some sin in your life, that you're struggling with that you would surrender it today. There's something you're harboring in your heart that you would look to the cross <coughs> and follow the example of Jesus Christ. I pray for all of us that we would be, we would be bold during this time and in one sense we would be <coughs> a people placed in the lives of these others, uh, an incarnation, if you will, so that we can come and give hope. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us grace. In Jesus' name, amen.